Hello and welcome to JG Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. As always, I'm Jeffrey, Minister and Chaplain at JG Ministries, and I'm glad you joined us. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to chapter 13 of the book of Luke, verse 18, and let's get into it. Last time we began to unpack chapter 13 with the importance of repentance, and we saw the healing of a woman on the Sabbath. Now this time we continue with a parable about faith with the parable of the mustard seed. So turn with me to our scriptures to verse 18 and let's begin. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leaven. Now look there for a look at both parables together here. <clears throat> we see that Luke uses two parables to add support to the account of the miraculous healing just described. In Jesus' teaching of the mustard seed, it represents that which is tiny but effective, because the tree sprouting from that seed is large enough for birds to settle in its branches. The point of the parable is the power inherent in the seed. This power is implicit in the kingdom. As Jesus' healing woman has just demonstrated, likewise, when Jesus' simile of the yeast in the gum is not that yeast penetrates the dough, but that it has the inherent power to do this. And after seeing this wonderful miracle of healing, the people might have been tempted to think that the kingdom would be set up immediately. Jesus disabused their minds by setting forth two parables of the kingdom of God, which describe it as it would exist between the time of the king's rejection and his return to the earth to Picture the growth of Christian confession as well as reality. Now, first of all, he likened the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. The mustard seed, which is one of the tiniest seeds. When it's cast into the ground, it produces a shrub, but not a tree. Therefore, when Jesus said that this seed produced a large tree, he indicated that the growth was highly abnormal. It was big enough for birds of the air to lodge in its own branches. The thought here is that Christianity had a small develop. Christendom is composed of all who profess allegiance to the Lord, whether or not they have ever been born again. The birds of the air are vultures or birds of prey. They are symbols of evil. And picture the fact that Christendom has become the resting place for various forms of corruption. The second parable likens the kingdom of God to leaven, which will win place in three measures of meal. We believe that leaven in the scripture is always a symbol of evil. Now here the thought is that evil doctrine has been introduced into the pure food of the people of God. This evil has power to serve. In the kingdom, it's the narrow gate into the kingdom. So let's look back to our scriptures to verse 22, the narrow way. 
And verse 22 begins, And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. But once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. On that very day, some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. To them, go to that fox. Behold, I cast him into today and tomorrow and third day. I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Now take a look at verses twenty-two and twenty-three here. Jesus' teaching now turns to personal responsibility. Luke first reminds us that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Like the question on divorce that we see in the book of Matthew, chapter 19, this one about whether few or many people will be saved occasioned by different things on the rise. As Jesus moved towards Jerusalem, someone stepped out of the crowd to ask him if only a few would be saved. It may have been an idle question provoked by mere curiosity. But we see this 24 to 27 here. Lord answered a speculative question with a direct command. He told the questioner to make sure that he himself would enter through the narrow gate. When Jesus said to strive to enter through the narrow gate, when Jesus said to strive through this gate, he did not mean that salvation requires effort on our part. The narrow gate is new birth, salvation by grace through faith. Jesus was warning the man to make sure that he entered by this door. Many will seek to enter and will not be able when once that door is shut. This does not mean that they will seek to enter in by the door of conversion, but rather that in the day of Christ's power and glory, they will want a mission to his kingdom. But it's going to be too late when that day comes. The day of grace in which we live will have come to an end. The master of the house will rise up and will shut the door. The Jewish nation is pictured then as knocking at the door and asking the Lord to open the door for them. He will refuse on the grounds that he never knew them. And then they will protest at this point, pretending that they had lived on intimate terms with Jesus. But he will not be moved by these pretensions. They were workers of iniquity, and they won't be allowed to enter in. Jesus' reply to the question posed to him emphasized not how many, but who. The saved are those who seize their opportunity now. Once the time for decision has passed, attempts to enter into salvation afterwards is going to be futile. The narrow door limits the opportunities a person has to enter. Thus, people should act now. 
Based on other scripture references, the phrase, but he will reply, indicates that the owner is, of course, Jesus, the Son of Man. The repetition of, I don't know you, or where you come from, denotes total rejection. In other words, familiarity with Jesus will be no benefit after the time to repent is his refusal, and we're talking about Jesus here, will cause weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeping indicates remorse, and the gnashing of teeth speaks of the violent hatred towards God. This shows that the sufferings of hell do not change the heart of man. Unbelieving Israelites will see Abraham and see Isaac, and they'll see Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. They themselves expected to be there simply because they were related to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but they will be thrust out. Gentiles will travel to the brightness of Christ's kingdom from all corners of the earth and will enjoy its wonderful blessings. Thus, many Jews who were first in God's plan for blessing will be rejected, while the Gentiles who were looked down on as dogs will enjoy the blessing of Christ's millennial reign. And the contrast is heightened between those inside and those outside the door, which is outside the kingdom. Every Jew expected to sit with the patriarchs at the Masonic banquet. The concept of such a feast in heaven as a celebration with the Messiah is alluded to throughout the entire Old Testament. The tragedy would not only be that of looking at the patriarchs from the outside, but also of seeing Gentiles inside with them. And verse 30 clearly means the exclusion from future blessings of those who thought they were first in line for them. And this exclusion will result in terrifying sense of doom. All right, let's go back to our scriptures. We have a little bit of time left. Uh, but before we get that far, let, let me give a couple more thoughts here. With the concern over Jerusalem, when the prophets perished in Jerusalem. This is the main passage in Luke in which Jesus expresses a strong sense of destiny in his final journey to Jerusalem. It marks a state Jesus' progress to Jerusalem and it prepares the reader for the next chapter. And note the sense of divine purpose that is expressed by such characteristic Lucan words as he uses today and must. Now, in verses 31 and 32, some Pharisees choose this time to warn Jesus of Herod's designs on his life. Uh, attributes no evil motive to those who are warning Jesus. Apparently, these Pharisees have Jesus' safety at heart. At this time, the Lord Jesus was apparently in Herod's territory, and the Pharisees came and, and warned him to get out because Herod was trying to get him. He seemed completely out of character in professing an interest in the welfare and the safety of Jesus. Perhaps they had joined in a plot with Herod to frighten him into going to Jerusalem, where Jesus would most certainly be apprehended. In Luke's last mention of him, Herod was troubled at the works of Jesus' miracles. By having John the Baptist beheaded, Herod thought that he had done away with prophetic opposition. But Jesus, far from being threatened by Herod, called him that fox. And even today, foxes connote cleverness. In Jesus' day, they also signified insignificance. Jesus intended to continue his ministry and to manifest the power of the kingdom, but not indefinitely. That time was short, since today and tomorrow 
the world days, the same goes for the third day, readers of the day of Jesus' resurrection. The goal of verse 32, however, undoubtedly means his death. The parallel expression, die in Jerusalem, that we have in verse 33. The statement of Jesus' purpose and progress continues in verse 33 with two additions. The specific reference to suffering, to die, in the word must. Luke strongly conveys Jesus' sense of purpose and necessity. The way Jesus was traveling was leading him to the cross and on to glory. Our Lord was not moved by the threat of physical violence. He recognized it as a plot on Herod's part and told the Pharisees to go back to that fox with a message. Now, some people have difficulty with the fact that the Lord spoke of Herod as a fox, a sh- in some traditions, a she-fox. The form is feminine in the original. They feel that it was in violation of Scripture, which forbids speaking evil of a ruler of the people. And we can refer to Exodus chapter 22. However, this was not evil. It was the absolute truth. And the gist of the message sent by Jesus was that he still had work to do for a short time. And then on the third day, that is the final day, he would have finished the work that was connected with his earthly ministry. Nothing would hinder Jesus in the performance of his duties. No power on earth could harm him until the appointed time. And in verse 33 here, further he could not be slain in Galilee. This prerogative was reserved for the city of Jerusalem. It was that city which characteristically had murdered his servants of the high God. Jerusalem had more or less a monopoly on the death of God's spokesman. And that is what the Lord Jesus meant when he said that it cannot be a pro or that it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. We end up with uh, verses 34 and 35. If you'll turn with me to scripture, let's read those two verses and then we'll visit over them. This is where Jesus laments over Jerusalem. And verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Often I wanted to gather children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes. You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, having thus spoken the truth concerning this wicked city, Jesus turned in pathos and wept over it. This city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers was the object of his tender love. How often he had wanted to gather the people of the city together and gathers her brood but they were not willing. The difficulty lay in their stubborn will. As a result, their city, their temple, and their land would be left desolate. They would pass through a long period of exile. In fact, they would not see the Lord until they changed their ad towards him. In verse 35b, that refers to the second advent, Christ, the second coming. The remnant of the nation of Israel will repent at that time, and was blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People will then be willing in the day of his power. Now, the reader's attention to Jerusalem, the city of destiny, both as a place of our Lord's passion and as the pathetic, unwilling object of his love. The house, perhaps specifically the temple, will now lose him until 
Psalms chapter 118, verse 26 is fulfilled. The substance of this quotation is recorded by all four Gospels in their account of the triumphal entry. But the words are said, not by the Jerusalemites, by Jesus' supporters. And with that, we have to close for today. That does finish our chapter 13. Next time we will start unpacking chapter 14. And we'll begin, I want to go over quickly the Jewish sects with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots. I want to give you a quick rundown so that you understand what each one was about. So until next time, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.